Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of What the Forensics. I'm Nicole, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Journey and Rebecca. Just to let you all know, we're still working to perfect our audio, so please bear with us. But we do appreciate all of your support thus far. Jumping into today's episode, we will be covering topics of sexual assault, domestic violence, kidnapping, and murder. Listeners' discretion is advised. We would also like to disclaim that none of us are experts in this field. We are still just students and are learning just as you are along the way. So today we'll be talking about Paul Bernardo, Canadian serial killer known as Ken, along with his accomplice, Barbie. We kind of touch upon Carla Homoka, but today's episode is focused on Paul Bernardo and the DNA and how it led to his arrest. So Rebecca, what did Paul get up to in his early life? Was he chaotic like some serial killers? Was he lonely? Did he mutilate dead animals? Animals? So <laughs> early in life, Paul Bernardo was actually pretty normal. He was born in 1964 to his mother, Marilyn Bernardo. Uh, Up until 1980, he believed that Kenneth Bernardo was his father, but we'll get into that later. His early life was pretty uneventful. He was a member of the Boy Scouts when he was 10 years old, and he got his first job at 12 years old at a family friend's restaurant. Um, It was in high school that things started to get a little bit weird with them and his parents. He had good grades in high school, but his parents didn't think he was doing good enough. And in June of 1980, his mother told Paul that Kenneth was not his real father. And this caused Paul to have a lot of hatred towards his mother and calling her a slut and a whore. And she started to simply refer to him as a bastard. So lovely. (laughs) That's kind of where his life starts to go amok. That's such a great nickname for a child. Yeah, really great one. Really supportive mother. Um, So in June of 1980, after him and his mother started having a falling out, he met his first girlfriend, Nadine Brammer, who described Bernardo as very controlling and overprotective. So in spring, a year later, when Nadine broke up with him because she was seeing his friend, He got so angry that he set fire to everything that Nadine had given him over their year-long relationship. Okay, that's normal. (laughs) It's normal. It seems so bad because we know what he's gone on to do. But if you think about it, that seems to be a relatively regular thing that happens at the end of relationships. Setting you on fire? Like, you burn all the stuff that they gave you because you don't want it anymore. Oh, you guys do that? I have never done that. I've but never I done it. That people do. I was going to break some mugs, but I like them too much, so I never did. And now I just <laughs> hate them as I drink from them. But I wouldn't say I burn stuff. It's like a cleansing <laughs> ritual. Oh. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Because now he's a serial killer. <laughs> So in 1982, a year after she broke up with him, he started going to bars and uh, lying to women so that they'd have sex with him. I wasn't able to find the kinds of lies he was saying, but still sounds scummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, and he was and what, then, only 17 at that time, too? Yeah, he was only 17. So 
he wasn't a legal adult either. So I I would assume he was probably lying about his age. That's one of them. Um, maybe saying he had he, money. Maybe saying he had a good job. I don't know. I don't get hit on to know what the classics are. To, but <laughs> I feel like it'd be something along the lines of that in the 80s. Yeah. Um, probably. <laughs> in... <laughs> In fall of 1983, when he was 19 years old, he started at the University of Toronto on the Scarborough campus, uh, where he met his friend Van, and they start. he started telling his friend Van about his virgin farm fantasy that he had, where he would have a stockpile of women who wanted to have sex with him, who were all virgins. Why was it like the farm? That just makes me go straight to farm animals and makes me so uncomfortable. But also, why would you tell anybody about that fantasy? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> He's probably like, yeah, this is this is the one. This is this a is great cool. fantasy. Everyone wants to get in on it. So after telling Van about this virgin farm fantasy, a year later... It was reported that he was constantly dating women, but for no longer than a month at a time. And he was clearly abusive during these relationships because they had all mentioned that if they told anyone about anything he'd done to them, he threatened to kill them. Um, so in the summer of uh, 1986, Paul started to have a few restraining orders taken out on him. The first one being from his friend's ex-girlfriend because he was making obscene phone calls to her. At the same time, Bernardo was in a relationship with someone named Carol. But while seeing her, he started to see another woman named Susie. And even though they both knew about each other, they were so controlled by him that they were scared to leave him. So they start they stayed with him while they knew he was dating both of them. Interesting. Ooh. Yeah. So eventually Carol ended up taking out a restraining order as well for obscene phone calls. And that's kind of where their relationship ended. And it was also in this year that he graduated from University of Toronto and got a job as an accountant at Pricewaterhouse in Toronto. So he starts to get uh, more criminal starting on May 4th of 1987 when he committed his first rape in Scarborough against a 21-year-old woman right in front of her parents' house after following her home. And this attack lasted more than half an hour. So like just on her front lawn. Yeah, pretty much. Like, it was, he was known for attacking girls near bus stops. So, I believe their uh, parents' house was near a bus stop. So, we followed her home and did it right in front of their house. Were there no neighbors around to be like, whoa, that man is sexually assaulting a woman? I guess not. It didn't say anything about it. He got away, uh, he got away with it for, like, four years at least without anybody knowing anything interesting Um, wow uh, so what happened with his second rape then because obviously he didn't just stop at one yeah so his second rape actually happened only 10 days after the first one this time it was a 19 year old woman and the um the notes I had on this, I was finding different information on different sources. Uh, but this 19-year-old woman was assaulted either in the backyard of her parents' house or at a bus stop. And this incident lasted over an hour. Wow. Ugh. 
Yeah. So then he took a he took a little break. He took a couple months off. And then in July 27th, he attempted his third rape at a bus stop. And all, uh, but she got away because she fought back after he started beating her and it was too much trouble for him to keep going. So she escaped oh because goodness. she fought back. So always then, fight back. Always, always fight, fight back. back. Rule number one, <laughs> if you're being attacked, fight back. <laughs> it was a couple months after that in October that Paul and Carla Homolka met for the first time. Uh, they went to a hotel with a few other friends and it's there that they also had sex for the first time. And then a month later, oh yeah, a month later they met again and Paul drove to see her twice a week and gave her love and attention as the relationship developed. However, eventually he started to become very controlling of her life. He started telling her what to wear, how to style her hair, what opinions to have, and even what to eat. He called her fat and ugly and he learned that Carla is not a virgin and became very upset about it. Wasn't it that, like, Carla had really similar, like, sexual fantasies as he did? And that was kind of one thing that kept them together was they had really sadistic interests when it came to having sex with people. And so that's kind of how their murder, not murder spree, but how their crimes kind of evolved, wasn't it? Their relationship kind of blossomed over the fact they both had really sadistic sexual fantasies. And despite the fact that Carla didn't help him commit his rapes for the first couple of years, they definitely still did talk about their very twisted love. Interesting. So since you said that Carla wasn't involved early on, what happened next after his attempted third sexual assault? After his attempted third sexual assault he went on to do it again a few months later and he unfortunately successfully completed his third rape this time against a 15 year old girl and it lasted about an hour um and it was because of this assault on december 16th of 1987 that the toronto police issued a warning to women in scarborough traveling alone at night and especially those taking buses because that's when they started to see a pattern in the rapes that he was committing. Interesting. Um, and um, then, just quickly. Yeah, of course. Um, the, was his third rape the same person that he attempted to rape earlier? Or was it a completely different lady? The third one was a completely different person. Okay. At this point, he's really just staking out bus stops and taking any opportunity he can get, unfortunately. Yuck. Yeah. So... Only a few days after the third, he committed his fourth against a 17-year-old. And unfortunately, this time, he used a knife during the attack, which is more violent than what he had done in the past. So he's kind of getting more confident, more sadistic with what he's doing. Um, It's at this point on December 23rd that he was given the nickname the Scarborough Rapist by newspaper outlets. And then he kind of went a little quiet for a few months. And it was in April of 1988 that his fifth attack happened against another underage girl lasting 45 minutes. Um, After this fifth attack, the Toronto police kind of said, okay, something's up here. And and I love that it takes them five attacks to be like, yeah, maybe there's an issue. Maybe not. Yeah. They're like, you know what? Now we'll do something. 
now we'll fix it. So on May 25th of 1988, uh, the police put an investigator at a bus stop as sort of like uh, trying to catch him. And he almost was caught. The investigator noticed that Bernardo was hiding under a tree. Uh, but despite, despite the fact that the police officer had pursued Bernardo on foot, he was able to escape him and he still didn't get an identification of Paul Bernardo. Wow. If that cop was a little bit faster, there would have been no rapes after that or murders. Yeah. Five days after he was almost caught, he committed his sixth, this time in Clarkston, not in Scarborough. Um, This attack was against an 18-year-old woman. And then between October 4th and November 16th, he attempted his seventh rape, but his intended victim fought him off. And then November 16th against another victim, he had his seventh rape in front of their parents' house. So November 17th, the police tried to step it up again, and they formed a special task force that was dedicated to capturing the Scarborough rapist. So now they were putting all of these cases together, and they said, we need to catch this person. We need a task force. Yes, I agree. 100%. They need to catch this person. So it was a a two-year period, you said, that these attempted and rape sexual assaults happened? Yeah, so Metro Police formed their task force November 17th of 1988, and then between that date and May 26th, 1990, he had attempted and completed another four sexual assaults. Wow. Um, two of them were against underaged women, and two of them were against adult women, uh, neither of which minimizes what he did, just giving a bit of an age gap of... So he didn't really care who it was. He was just like, there's a woman. She looks like it would be, she'd be good to sexually assault, essentially. Yeah. And he seemed to prefer younger women, but judging by the victims that uh, he did have, it's clear that like he was okay with anybody from like their mid teens to like mid twenties. Oh, gotcha. Um, was Carla a part of any of these or? Does she enter the picture later? At this point, Carla is still not active with him, and she actually has no idea that he's the one committing all of these rapes. Interesting. Yeah, so in July of 1990, they received a tip that Bernardo fit the composite sketch for the Scarborough Rapist because the 11th uh, victim got a good enough look at him that they were able to uh, do a computer composite photograph of him that was later released by police and published in newspapers. They ended up bringing in Paul Bernardo for an interrogation. And unfortunately, this interrogation lasted only 35 minutes. They did take his DNA sample, but they concluded the, um, the interrogation saying that such a well-educated, well-adjusted, congenial young man couldn't be responsible for the vicious crimes. He was far more credible than Alex Smirnis, who is one of the people that gave his name to the police, uh, with his awkward, strange way of speaking, might just be trying to collect the word. And then pa- Paul Bernardo was released the following day of his investigate or his interrogation. So they basically were like, you don't look like you could do it. You can go. Yeah, he was basically, he was sort of a Ted Bundy in that he was able to escape the police at least for a little bit because of his charm and his wow. education. 
It seems um, to be a common theme where, like, if you're attractive, police do not think you're a serial killer. Like, attractive people are not capable yeah, of killing people. Yeah, they're like, oh, attractive people? They can't do that. They have good lives. They have good faces. <laughs> I wonder, <laughs> like, the psychology behind that, though. Like, is it associated because more attractive faces fit the golden ratio and you just automatically go to something positive? I think they just look more friendly. Like, if you find someone attractive, you automatically think that they're friendlier, I'd assume. Interesting. Does that make sense? Did I explain that well? That makes sense. Oh, it does make sense. (laughs) So, their first murder victim was Tammy Homoka, who happened to be Carla Homoka's youngest sister. By the time that Tammy Homoka had become uh, any sort of involvement, Carla and Paul were engaged, and Paul had become obsessed with Tammy and would frequently be seen peeping into her window and entering her room to masturbate while she slept. Instead of being a decent sister and, like, you know, kicking out Paul and reporting him to the police, instead, Carla helped him by breaking the blinds in Tammy's windows to allow him easier access. Nice. Yeah, so it's after this incident that Carla said she wanted to give Tammy's virginity to Bernardo for Christmas. So they administered sleeping pills to her in a rum and eggnog cocktail. Also, she's 15. I, n- I know underage kids drink. But she's 15. You shouldn't be giving her rum and eggnog. <laughs> Plus sleeping pills to add it. Plus you know, sleeping rum and pills. You know, it's the holiday season. Maybe have one or two. But she's young. She's probably a lightweight. The sleeping pills on top of that is just a dangerous game. Yeah, <laughs> so... After Tammy was knocked unconscious from the mix of alcohol and sleeping pills, Homoka and Bernardo undressed her and uh, Carla applied um, a halothane-soaked cloth to her sister's nose and mouth. Halothane is an anesthetic agent that she stole from the veterinary clinic that she works at. So the reason they did this was to prevent her from waking up. So that unfortunately didn't work out in their favor because Tammy ended up choking on her own vomit while unconscious, uh, and the pair had to call 911 after they assaulted her. Oh. Um, Yeah, but before they called 911, they cleaned up the scene. So they put on her clothes, they put in her bedroom, they called 911, said that she got drunk and vomited uh, with her own puke. And the police took their word as the word of god really they were like okay we accept it her death was accidental and they just left are you serious yeah so despite the fact that this underage girl was found supposedly found dead in her bed choking on vomit uh the police just decided to rule it accidental they didn't think anything suspicious had been going on um and yeah they left them be where they just never really disturbed them again for that incident. Did they not, like, perform an autopsy and find that she had been sexually assaulted? Like, how did they just gloss over that? They, even in the autopsy, they just reported that the cause of death was choking on her vomit. They weren't looking for, like, other drugs in her system, or they weren't looking for sexual assault. They were just looking for her cause of death. Oh, that's... That's not good. Um, 
So wasn't Carla super involved in Tammy's sexual assault and murder as well? Because from what I've heard, she like videotaped the whole thing. She was very involved in like telling Bernardo what to do and all of this stuff. And it came out later after the fact that she made a plea deal. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure how I missed this part in my notes. Um, But during the attack against Tammy, uh, you're right. Carla did actually set up a film camera and film the sexual assault that was happening against her sister while she held the soaked cloth to her mouth to keep her unconscious. Um, I don't believe it was in this case that Carla helped with the sexual assault itself, but there are cases in the future that she was an active member of the sexual assault. Oh, okay. I always thought it was her sister's case, but it may have been one of the other ones. So it was uh, after the death of her sister uh, that... Carla and Paul decided to move out of Carla's parents' house into a bungalow in Port Dalhousie because they they claimed that they wanted to leave her parents to be able to cope with their grief on their own terms. For other people, too, in Ontario, I think we other pronunciations are Port Dalhousie as well, which is weird since we know oh. Dalhousie University. Yeah, they're spelt the same way. But from what I know, it's Dalhousie, which doesn't make any sense. Um, so it was about a year and four months after the attack on Tammy that the 12th sexual assault occurred. This assault uh, was only Paul committing it. And unlike the others, it happened during the day and not at a bus stop. So this was a bit odd because it wasn't like his usual characteristics. Um, the 13th assault was the next assault to involve Carla. Uh, Carla had brought an underage girl that she had met at a job two years prior, uh, out for a girl's night out on the town. And after the girl's night on the town, she brought her home and laced her alcohol with halcyon, which is a benzodiazepine type drug similar to Valium. So knocked her right out, knocked her right out. And after she lost consciousness, I'm going to refer to her, by the way, as Jane Doe, because she uh, she actually did survive and she testified against them in court. However, was referred to only as Jane Doe because she was underage and wanted to protect her identity. Um, So after she lost consciousness, Homoka called Bernardo to tell him that she had a surprise wedding gift ready for him. And they then, yeah, and then together they undressed the girl who Carla made sure to note was a virgin. And then Bernardo videotaped Carla as she raped the girl. And then Bernardo vaginally and anally penetrated her. Wow. Which it just Quite feels. a wedding gift. So romantic. Yeah, it's so gross. And it just, ugh, it grosses me out even talking about it. Because um, they, they had only been married for a year, right, too? And so... She was probably like, oh, newlyweds, let me just bring a young virgin to you. Yeah. And I think what really grosses me out about this case is that the next morning, Jane Doe woke up and believed that her vomiting was only due to being, uh, being drunk 
last the night before because she'd never drank an alcohol before and she had no idea that she had been assaulted the night before. I'm going to come back to Jane Doe later because she does come up later on in the years again. So after the assault of Jane Doe, they kind of just let her go because she didn't know she was assaulted. So she didn't have anything against them. Only about eight days after um, Jane Doe had been assaulted, Bernardo was on his way home to uh, Carla when he had made a detour through Burlington to steal license plates. As one does, obviously. As one does. I thought that was a really odd point. But the source I'm using is like, yeah, he stole. He just went to steal license plates. That's it. Can you make money off of the metal? Like, if would it, it be something that he would bring in, they'd melt it down, they give him money for whatever he gives them? Oh, maybe. I never. I have no that. idea. Interesting. Anyways, so he went to steal license plates <laughs> through Burlington. Yeah, so he went into Burlington to steal license plates uh, when he came across a girl roaming the streets alone. Her name was Leslie, uh, and she was on the streets alone because she missed her curfew that night after attending a funeral. And she was locked out of her home and couldn't find anyone to stay with that night. Her parents, like, intentionally locked her out, didn't they? Yeah, because her curfew, she was past her curfew, so they were just like, okay, don't come home for the night. Wow. But she was at a funeral. Like, I'm pretty sure I'd make an exception if my daughter was at a funeral and then she missed curfew. Yeah, it's a a weird one. Interesting parenting (laughs) techniques in this story. Definitely. So apparently what went down next was that uh, Paul approached her and told her he was looking to break into the neighbor's house. And she just kind of shrugged and went, "Okay, you got any cigarettes? What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. so uh, he as he would thinking this is perfect. He said, yeah, I have cigarettes. And then. So he led her back to his vehicle where he said he was going to get them for her. Uh, But then on his way to the car, he blindfolded her and then forced her into the vehicle and drove back to his and Carla's house in uh, Port Dalhousie. I'm going to pronounce like Dalhousie. How did you pronounce it? Port Dalhousie. Port Port Dalhousie. Yeah, I I don't know if it's just like a local thing or if I've just been taught that it's that way and it's totally wrong but yeah crazy so Mm -hmm. anyways when he got home with their next victim he informed Homoka that he had a new playmate for them ew i know ew and then bernardo and Homoka subsequently videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing her all while listening to bob marley and david bowie playlists what I did not know that. What the hell? And then at one point during the assault, Bernardo apparently said to her, you're in this. I feel grossed out having to repeat these words, but I'm gonna for science. Um, He said, you're doing a good job, Leslie, a damned good job. The next two hours are going to determine what I do to you right now. You're scoring perfect. And they know he said this because it was caught on the tape that they were filming while assaulting her that assault was really bad and it actually escalated and 
I can't imagine being a juror on this trial because they played some of the segments of these tapes during his trial. Um, and it said that during this tape, uh, Mahaffey, her, the victim's name was Leslie Mahaffey. She cried out in pain and begged Bernardo to stop. And in the crown description of the scene, he was sodomizing her while her hands were bound with twine. Uh, it makes my heart hurt. It makes mine hurt, too. And even worse is that the uh, the next day she died, but they're not completely sure how she died because Bernardo claimed that Homoka fed her a lethal dose of halcyon, while Homoka claims that Bernardo had strangled her. That's awful. Imagine, too, like, I just feel bad for Mahaffey's parents. Like, one, yeah, you lost your daughter, and that's traumatizing. But the fact that you they locked her out, mm-hmm. like, that's so difficult to come to terms with. Yeah, the guilt they would be feeling. Wow. So, the day after this uh, all went down, so June 16th of 1991, the couple decided that they were the best way to get rid of her body. Uh, and evidence was to dismember her and encase each dismembered part of her in a piece of cement and throw it in Lake Gibson, 18 kilometers south of their house. Wow. One of the piece, one of the blocks that they attempted to sink weighed 200 pounds, but it was too heavy for them. So they didn't really bother to try to sink it in a deep enough area. Um, So the block basically rested near the shore where a month later, a father and son on a fishing trip discovered it. So earlier I mentioned Jane Doe. She came back on the 10th of August in 1991 to spend the night with them. And uh, she willingly spent the night with them because still at this point, she had no idea she was assaulted by them. So she she went to have drinks with them. And then they drugged her again. And then after being drugged and assaulted by Bernardo, she actually stopped breathing in the same manner that Tammy stopped breathing. She started choking on her vomit. So Homoka called 911 for help. But then a few minutes later, called 911 again to say that uh, Jane Doe was actually doing okay and that the emergency crew wasn't needed anymore. So the emergency crew was recalled and they didn't even do a follow up. I feel like as an emergency service, like being an EMS, if you get called that something's happening, you still go to make sure things are okay. Yeah, to make sure they're actually alive and doing okay. Because even Mm -hmm. if like they are doing better, like you should probably still check if things are normal or what happened and how to like kind of prevent it, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So after that, Jane Doe still didn't know that they assaulted her because she woke up again with no recollection of the night before. So she went home again on her merry way, unfortunately. Her body wasn't found until a year later. Oh, sorry. It wasn't found till 10 days later. And her all of her hair had been cut off. Later, Homoka had said that she cut the hair off of her to try to impede on identification. <laughs> what? <laughs> like that makes sense if you don't know what color their hair is it can really change the way you look but I mean her face is still there her fingerprints her dental records there's so many things to help identify her yeah that's true 
after this, another few months went by where they were very silent, nothing had happened. And then we got another visit from Jane Doe on December 22nd of 1992. Luckily for Jane Doe, this is her last time with them as she visited them once more. And this time they tried to be upfront about the sex and Homoka tried to pressure her into having it with Bernardo. Uh, but she became upset and distressed with this and left the scene before anything could happen. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Really um, dodged a bullet with that one. <laughs> absolutely. And then it's only five days later after their visit with Jane Doe that Bernardo uh, severely beat Carla with a flashlight, causing severe bruising on her limbs and both of her eyes. Oh. Do we know why he did that or was it just like a sporadic thing lost control decided that Carla was close so he assaulted her it was it was never specifically stated I think it was just a simple like lost control already an abusive boyfriend becoming physical type situation Mm, gotcha so Uh, She was abused on the 27th of December, and then when she returned to work on the 4th of January, uh, her co-workers saw the bruising and demanded that her parents take her to the hospital. So this was a really big break in the case, because even though she claimed to her co-workers that she got the bruises from a traffic accident at the hospital, she claimed to be a battered spouse and filed charges against Bernardo for assault, who was then arrested and charged with her assault but released on uh, recognizance. So he was charged waiting for trial. He was only released just because it was like the the justice system was like, we trust you to come back for trial. You're fine. Oh, I love the justice system. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What I thought was super, I say neat. I don't mean neat in a good way. No one should have been hurt, but. So he was charged with her assault on January 4th, and he had to give DNA, uh, I believe, at that time as well, when he assaulted her. And it was only a month later that the police had gotten around to testing his DNA sample from the Scarborough rapist case in 1990. Wow. So when they finally tested it and found that he was a DNA match, they arrested him at his home. So on February 17th of 1993, he was arrested. And then Carla was arrested on the 20, between the 24th and 26th of February, but agreed to testify against Paul in return for a reduced sentence. Um, but she never helped police figure out where the videotapes were. The police didn't even know that there were videotapes of multiple victims. Uh, so after the police search warrants had expired, Paul Bernardo had called his lawyer to go to their house and remove six uh, video cassettes from a light fixture in their bathroom. Wow. And all of these uh, hidden videotapes were of the the sexual assaults of their murdered victims. Wow. So the police let their search warrants expire? What does that mean? Did they just never act on them? Or... Were they, they searching for so long? They were only granted a 71-day search warrant, and they used all of those 71 days. But Carla and Paul were very strategic, and they did not leave behind much evidence for them in the house. So oh, okay. it wasn't until uh, after the warrant expired that Paul 
notified his uh, lawyer that there were videotapes that needed to be removed from the home. But he told his lawyer not to view the tapes until after Paul had been convicted so that he couldn't have those used against him. Wow. Smart, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. The tape grows awful, but smart. Yeah. So on May 14th, Carla led the police to some of the evidence uh, such as areas in the house where DNA evidence could prove that there were girls, uh, the murdered girls were in the house at the same time as Bernardo. And she also led them to the cement that he purchased to hide his first victim, as well as their signed receipt for the return. So that signed receipt was actually a really big piece of evidence in this case because it connected him to the murder because it was the same cement and everything used for hiding that first body. That's cool. Yeah, so then September 1st, 1995, Bernardo was found guilty. A jury found him guilty of two counts of each kidnapping, forcible confinement, aggravated sexual assault, and first-degree murder, along with one count of offering an indignity to a dead human body, and that was for dismembering the first victim. His sentence was life in uh, prison with no chance of parole for 25 years, and he was later taken to Kingston Penitentiary, where he's in a tiny cell for 23 hours a day. Wasn't he later deemed a dangerous offender as well, so that 25 years is basically non-existent anymore? Yeah, that's actually what I was just about to say. So November 3rd, he was brought to Scarborough uh, County, where he faced charges for the Scarborough rapes and faced a dangerous offender hearing. Okay. So the charges that he faced for the Scarborough uh, rapes included 10 counts of sexual assault while using a weapon, two counts of choking with intent to render incapable of resistance to sexual assault, three counts of budgery, five counts of sexual assault causing bodily harm, two counts of unlawful confinement, six counts of anal intercourse, eight counts of robbery, and two counts of aggravated assault. He accepted the dangerous offender declaration and concedes to guilt in all the assaults in exchange for that all charges against him, including the role he played in the death of uh, Tammy Homoka, be stayed. But it was determined that because he's a dangerous offender, he will likely be in prison indefinitely because of all of these crimes. So the final thing I have to say about this case is just that it was in June 28th of 1993 that Carla was sentenced to 12, only 12 years because of the plea bargain she offered. And then in July 4th of 2005, she was released and changed her name and she now has a family. And it's just she lives in Quebec, her. doesn't she? Yeah, pretty sure. She's living under a new name with a, a loving, I guess, family. Um, and she's not being bothered for these really horrible crimes anymore. Her, um, kind of sick. Her new husband was her lawyer's brother, apparently. Something like that. Oh. Which is a little messed up, considering he knows everything that she had done. Yeah, Mm -hmm. really. Yeah. I actually first learned about this case, um, with my grandparents when we were in Quebec. Um, My grandma was like, hey, did you know? And I was like, Oh, can we leave? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that is the really gross, violent history of Paul and Carla. I'm sorry if I was a little all over the place at times. They had a very long history in a very short period of time. Yeah. Yeah, what, that was a span of, what, 95? And they started in... 
87. So not even 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Okay. Well, I know you had mentioned, too, that they had the swabs done when he was a suspect in the Scarborough rapist case. And then he had swabs done again when Carla, um, I guess, the filed? Solid. Yeah, when she brought it to the police. So how did that actually work against Bernardo? Like, so Journey, you know a bit more about this, but how did they connect the two together? So I know Rebecca covered a bit about the basics of DNA when she talked about forensic genealogy last episode. So I'm going to try not to be too repetitive, but still cover information so you know what I'm talking about. Um, Also, I am not an expert in DNA. I am taking a DNA typing class this semester. So I'm going to talk about how DNA analysis was used to solve this case specifically. Um, But first, I kind of should show you or tell you a bit more about what DNA is. Um, You two might know, but the listeners might not. Um, So DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, and it's found in every cell in your body. Um, Although I recently learned that red blood cells don't actually carry DNA. So when you analyze blood, you're looking at the white blood cells on the platelets. Oh, Ah. I didn't actually know that. (laughs) Yeah, that's neat. Why was that not taught in any of our biology or forensics classes? Like, especially when we did blood spatter analysis? Right? I have no idea. Do you think it could have been and we weren't paying attention? Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, it's entirely possible. Uh, Yeah, so that's super weird and interesting. Um, DNA contains the whole genetic makeup of who we are. And this genetic makeup is coded by only four bases, guanine, cytosine, adenine, and thymine. Um, These four bases are made into super long sequences which can then code for different things such as eye color, hair color, detached earlobes, etc. Um, it's thought that the genetically relevant information makes up only 10% of the human genome, which is crazy to think about. I read a thing that said the human genome is like 3 million base pairs or something like that, but only 10% of that is genetically relevant. So what would the other 90% consist of? Just They like- said... It was just like junk DNA, junk in quotations. Um, it's not actually junk. It's just other things that aren't as important. I can't remember. Interesting. I would yeah. have thought all. I would have thought all parts of the genome would have been relevant. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. me too. I would have thought that. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I yeah I told I don't remember. It didn't make sense to me, so I didn't retain it. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we actually have two different kinds of DNA. So we have mitochondrial DNA, which you inherit from your maternal line only, and nuclear DNA, which you inherit from both of your parents. And for DNA analysis, we're looking at your nuclear DNA because it carries more information and is easier to access. And the three most commonly used sources of DNA are blood, semen, and saliva. However, DNA is not limited to those three things. In this case, they actually use hair as well as blood and saliva, which is really interesting. And for hair samples, too, you need the follicle on the end to actually, like, produce a DNA sample, yeah. right? Yeah. Hair, your hair strand doesn't have any DNA. It's in the follicle that has the DNA, which is interesting. Cool. But so, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I 
this probably sounds like I didn't learn anything in biology or forensics <laughs> last year, but like in a hair strand or the follicle, what part is the, the, the DNA? Because I know we talk about white blood cells, your DNA, or is it just in, I said, you said all cells. Yeah, it's just in the cells that are in the... So am I just um, comp- making it more complex than it really is? I think so. Like your hair is just dead cells. They won't have any D- live DNA in them. But the follicle is the living part of your hair, so it contains the DNA. Oh, does that make sense? This is why I did not continue with biology. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of DNA and how it's kind of evolved with forensics. Um, so in 1985, Alec Jeffries published his paper on applying DNA profiling to forensic science. And he also looked at DNA fingerprinting, um, which is basically using regions of repeated sequences to differentiate between individuals. I don't fully understand how DNA fingerprinting and DNA analysis are different. Um, in 1986, we saw the first use of forensic DNA typing in the Pitchfork case in Britain. It involved the use of blood types specifically. So blood type A was found on the scene. A local boy confessed, but he we know he didn't do it because his blood type didn't match what was found at the crime scene. Um, the police then required all the men in town to give semen and blood samples to compare to the semen and blood found. And they learned that it was a guy named Colin Pitchfork who committed the murder, hence the name Pitchfork case. Um, how many people were in that town? Like, how do you ask every male in a town to produce saliva and semen for them? Or blood, sorry, not saliva. Um, I'm assuming it was a smaller town. Okay. Like, I couldn't imagine, like, asking every male in downtown Halifax or the HRM, be like, hey, let me poke you with a needle to get your blood and here's a jar. Not a jar. <laughs> Maybe not a jar. Here's a cup. <laughs> yeah. I, I have no idea, but I'm just assuming it's small. And then in 1989, we had the first Canadian conviction with DNA evidence. They matched semen from a sexual assault to the accused. Um, in 1995, a bill was passed that allowed judges to issue warrants to obtain DNA evidence in an investigation. Uh, in 1998, DNA evidence was used to identify human remains from the Swiss Air Flight 111 disaster, which was a major project. Um, in 2000, we launched the National DNA Data Bank, and Bill C-3 was passed, which allowed for the collection of DNA samples from offenders convicted of certain offenses. Since then, we've had lots of improvements to this discipline. However, it's still not perfect, and it still has a lot of work that needs to be done, as we'll see later. And so it's important to mention that a forensic setting isn't the only place where DNA can be used. It can be used to identify victims of a catastrophe, such as 9-11. It can be used for establishing paternity and other familial relationships, even though paternity is the most common. It can be used to detect or identify bacteria, among other things that are in our food and environment. And it can be used to determine pedigree for seed and livestock breeds. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And then... Now I'm going to talk about how we collect DNA evidence from a crime scene. The first thing you want to do is collect a sample of the potential DNA evidence. There are many different ways to do this, as DNA evidence comes in many different forms. But in this specific case, they collected hair, blood, and saliva samples from Paul Bernardo. 
And so for a hair sample, you need the follicle to be attached because that's where the DNA is, as we already talked about. And then to collect blood for DNA is fairly self-explanatory. And then for saliva, he most likely spit into a sterile container. They didn't specify if he spit into a container or had his cheek swabbed. I'm just assuming that it was into a sterile container because they didn't say cheek swab. (laughs) (laughs) And then once you have collected the DNA evidence, you need to extract the actual DNA from it, which is what I'm learning in my DNA typing class today. I'm so jealous. Oh, it's so interesting. And to do this, you need to break down the cell because DNA is held in the chromosomes found in the nuclei. So you need to then separate the DNA from the other components in the cell, and then you want to isolate the DNA so that it can be analyzed for the next steps. There are a ton of ways that you can extract DNA depending on the type of sample that you have and what you're extracting. Um, We don't have time to cover all those, which is too bad because there's some really, really interesting ones. There's one that I learned that (laughs) you can um, extract, like in a sexual assault, um, if you do... If you get a sample that has the victim's DNA and sperm cells, you can actually separate the sperm cells from the victim's DNA and create profiles for each. Really? Yeah. And usually it's not like a pure victim profile. It's usually the victim profile mixed with um, like cell components from the sperms or from the cells that are not sperm. And then, yeah, you can separate. It's really cool. Anyway, um, yeah, extraction just cleans up the sample, keeps it from degrading, and prepares it for further analysis. And in this case, specifically, they use RFLP, or Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism Methods, which means that the next step is DNA fragmentation. In this step, the DNA is pretty much cut into smaller sections by restriction enzymes. That's the whole gimmick of RFLP methods. RFLP is not typically used anymore because it takes longer and you need a bigger sample. Um, They instead use PCR approaches, which are polymerase chain reactions, which are faster and more accurate and you need less. And then after the DNA has been cut into fragments, they are separated by gel electrophoresis. Um, In gel electrophoresis, the DNA fragments are put onto a gel slab, and then an electric current is applied that pulls them through the gel. Um, The smaller fragments move faster, and the DNA samples are then separated into distinct bands on the gel. So the smaller fragments will move farther down the gel and create a band lower down, whereas the more larger fragments will stay closer to the top. Sorry to interrupt. Did they use um, gel electrophoresis and RFLP in Bernardo's case? Yes, they did. Okay. Yeah. okay. Because yeah. of the case is so old, um, PCR is relatively new, so that's why they would have used RFLP is because it's an older case and PCR hadn't quite been invented yet. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so um, after the fragments are separated, the gel is stained so that you can see where they ended up on the gel slab. And then after gel electrophoresis, you do an analysis for a known sample and then like an unknown sample side by side. And you look at the locations of the bands within the gel to determine if they are a match. A match is indicated by bands that are at the same position within the well or column of the gel slab. 
I'm going to put a picture of what a completed gel electrophoresis looks like in our source list so you can kind of visualize what I'm talking about a bit more. Um, with this case specifically, they would have compared the DNA obtained from the sexual assault with Paul Bernardo's DNA samples that he gave during his um, first interrogation with the police. And then... So would sorry. they have compared the... Uh, DNA from the murders to Paul Bernardo's that he gave at the time of the Scarborough rapist phase area of time, or would he have given a new sample for them to compare with? Yeah, it, they used the DNA they already had on file just because he was a suspect in the Scarborough rapist case. So they were just going down the suspect list and that's when they got to his and made the match. Oh, so they would have gone, like, they didn't just jump to conclusion and be like, it's Paul Bernardo, let's do the match, let's compare it, say it's done, bring it to court. So they would have gone down the list? Yeah, they had, like, 130 yeah. samples of oh, wow. DNA from different people that they had to analyze. That sounds long and tedious. Yes, <laughs> and that's probably why um, he gave his first DNA sample on November 21st, 1990, and the results weren't obtained until February 1st, 1993, a whole 25 and a half months later. Wow. Yeah. This is obviously a huge issue because if the samples had been given any kind of priority, like they would have known it was him in January of 1991. Mm -hmm. So if they had done the analysis in 1990, they would have prevented him from those murders yeah yeah and that brings us to a huge issue with the backlog of dna analyses because they're like preventing us from catching people because we have so many that need to get analyzed but not enough time and resources yeah. to actually analyze them and it's tough, too, because, like, in cases like this, the prosecution and courts are like, well, we need this evidence for our trial at this date. You need to put this closer up. But if yeah, everyone's yeah. doing that, it's just can't all be done. It's yeah. still a backlog. And that's all that I had for DNA, DNA analysis for this case. Interesting. Well, thank you for explaining all of that to us. Yeah. Thank I've... you for the very thorough rundown. <laughs> I definitely wasn't paying attention in our DNA typing class last year, <laughs> so I appreciate the knowledge. Just to kind of end things off like we did last episode, I've got my big book of serial killers by Jack Rosewood, and we're going to do a number generator between 1 and 150, and we have 14. Let me just look. So 14. Teen is Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Lewis Norris. Oh, I've so, never oh, heard of them. Bittaker sounds familiar. I think there's a podcast or a documentary about Bittaker. Um, they are known as the Toolbox Killers. Yes, I remember listening to a podcast about that. <laughs> okay, so next episode, we're going to be covering those two. I am severely excited now that I remember where they're from. So, Rebecca, where can people find us? 
if they want to follow us and keep up to date with all of our episodes. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at WhatTheForensics, or find us on Twitter at WTForensicsPC, or go to our website, WhatTheForensics.ca, to listen to the podcast and also see our sources and more about us. Uh, Journey, where can they also listen to us? I know we have our Buzzsprout page, but what other platforms are we streaming on? We are also on Apple Music and Spotify. You can find us at What the Forensics on those two streaming platforms. And Journey, I know you are very excited about this. Do you have any new information to tell our listeners if they are interested? Yeah. So I was bored one day and I made What the Forensics stickers on Vistaprint. And I was wondering if any of our listeners would be interesting interested in purchasing a sticker that says what the forensics and has our little skull logo on it they'd be two to three bucks not outrageous um we'd send them right to you and yeah if you're interested send us a dm or an email or anything and we'll get them ordered for you yay that's so exciting only three episodes in and we have personalized stickers right (laughs) we're doing big things with our life Okay, so since we are university students and school began last week, we will try to get episodes out as frequently as we can, like before we had one a week, but I think we're going to try and do one every two weeks now. If it's three weeks, we apologize, we'll keep you guys up to date, it just all depends on what our school schedule is like since academics come first, because this is kind of a little fun thing on the side that we're doing. All right, to end things off, I have a joke for you guys. Yay! I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, I'll try. <laughs> what, what is Will Smith's favorite type of forensic evidence? What? <laughs> Fresh prints. <laughs> I absolutely love that joke. That's so good. Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. I hope that made at least a few of our listeners giggle because we found that way too funny. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening us, to us this week. Hopefully we will be back in two weeks time learning about the toolbox killers. This has been another episode of What the Forensics. See you next time. <laughs>